0: Go ahead find Romans chapter 8 with me. We'll get started there. Romans chapter 8. Let's jump into it. Two questions to get to tonight. Question number one. What does it mean for the Spirit to intercede? Uh, and then there's a little more to the question. Must we speak in order for it to happen, or can the Spirit hear our thoughts? Let's get our feet under us <clears throat> here in Romans 8. Uh, Romans 8 has been called the, the high point of the Bible. Um, in short, Romans 8 is about life in the Spirit. Uh, in chapter 7, Paul is preoccupied with the place of law in Romans chapter 7. And he upholds the law as holy and righteous and good, but the law is also insufficient. It cannot liberate us from our slavery to sin. And so in chapter 8, Paul is now preoccupied with the Spirit. Paul refers to at least 19 times by name in Romans chapter 8. Uh, The contrast between law and spirit is really spelled out in chapter 7 and verse 6 when Paul writes the following. He said, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit not of the old way of the written code. And so the law was good, but the law was insufficient. It was provisional. The law could successfully point out our sin, the law could not cure our sin sin used law as a weapon to tempt us and condemn us but that's where the spirit comes in we are free from the law of sin and death the spirit can do this and so we must abide in him and so in Romans chapter 8 he is talking about the blessings of living in the spirit in this new covenant and among the help and a life the spirit provides us uh, is intercession provided us before God so this is Romans 8 and verse 26 Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Verse 27, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul acknowledges that life under the sun can be difficult because of our weakness, because of our sin. We still live in these not-yet-redeemed bodies. We still live in this sin-corrupted world. And we, along with all creation, are groaning with anticipation for God to come and and make good on all his promises. That's verses 22 and 23, creation groaning, and we're groaning along with creation. But as we're waiting for this future glory, God offers us help in the meantime. He doesn't just leave us to suffer and groan by ourselves. He gives us help so that we don't have to be overwhelmed. And the help comes in verse 26 in the form of the Spirit who helps us in our weaknesses. And so what does Paul say the Spirit is doing on our behalf? Verse 26 and 27 says, he intercedes for us. He intercedes for the saints. So what does that mean? Well, the word intercede means to intervene or to make an appeal on behalf of another. And usually when we think about someone interceding for us before God, we think of Jesus. Jesus. And, in fact, that is something Jesus is busy doing. In verse 34, he mentions this. Verse 34, um, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So there is the intercessory work of Jesus. And verse 26 says the Spirit is also doing something like that before God, interceding on our behalf. Specifically, verse 26 says he is involved in our prayer life to some degree. Verse 26 again, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We are weak, and part of that weakness is that we have trouble, sometimes, even knowing what we should pray. Sometimes we have trouble even working out what it is that's happening inside our own hearts. We don't even know what the right thing to ask for is. We don't know what we actually need from God. We don't know how to put into words the deep emotions of our heart. We're just not that smart. That's part of our weakness. We're not that self-aware. We're not that spiritually sensitive. Sometimes we're not knowledgeable of what God's specific will is in this situation. That's where the Spirit comes in. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So here's the difficult situation I'm put in as someone who's supposed to explain what that means. I'm supposed to now use words... To explain how the spirit intercedes on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. Right? So the spirit successfully puts into words all these things, and now I'm supposed to explain how that works. And I have no idea. There's just a lot I don't understand about this. But broadly, the point is this. Communication with God still happens even when we don't know how to expertly uh, expertly convey our, our thoughts and our feelings before God. Communication before God still happens even when we don't know exactly how to express ourselves. The Spirit somehow intercedes on our behalf to express our inexpressible thoughts, to express the needs we're not even quite sure uh, how, to, how to ask for, to make those prayers before God. Maybe we could think of it this way. Of course, the Spirit is the great revealer of the mind of God to us in the Bible, but it seems that it goes in the other direction as well. It seems to be a great revealer of our minds to God as well as we appeal to Him. And so verse 27 again. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So verse 26 concentrates on the Spirit, expressing the inexpressible. But verse 27 emphasizes that God understands all of this. He understands the Spirit's groanings. He who searches hearts here is the omniscient God, the God who looks on the heart. He doesn't need perfectly phrased, perfectly eloquent prayers in order to know our hearts and in order to know what we really need. That's what I take from these verses. So to return to our question, I think the answer is that the Spirit can discern not just our words, but the Spirit can discern our groanings. That is the sort of subverbalized, the nonverbalized thing. The Spirit can discern our thoughts, the groanings we have trouble articulating. In prayer, we try our best to express ourselves to God, express what it is we're we're in, express what it is we think we need. And we try our best to ask God to give us what we need. But I think part of what these verses do is give us comfort from the fact that the effectiveness of our prayers does not depend on our eloquence. The effectiveness of our prayers does not depend on our eloquence. Never, ever, ever use this as an excuse not to pray. Well, I don't know what to say or I'm not well spoken, just pray. Just pour out your heart to God, try to know his will as well as you possibly can, and try to submit yourself before him and always speak to him with the assurance that God can make sense of our nonsense. That's my crack at that. That's what I think it means for the spirit to intercede. I think he even knows our deepest thoughts and deepest groanings. Second question. More, uh, More time spent on this one. What does the Bible say about the occult and witchcraft, about witchcraft and the occult? A little background to this question. Um, Attached to this question uh, was an article called Why Paganism and Witchcraft are Making a Comeback. Um, The article says uh, statistics are hard to come by for the movement since there's a real lack of formal organization. There's not a church of witchcraft or anything like that. There's a lot of solitary practitioners sort of doing their own thing. But here's what we can kind of cobble together from this and that study. A 1990 study estimated there were about 8,000 adherents of Wicca, which is sort of a brand of of witchcraft. 8,000 adherents in the year 1990. A 2008 U.S. census that tried to track religious affiliation put that number at 342,000, which is quite a leap. And then a 2014 Pew study increased that estimate even more. I couldn't find a clear number there, but it said it had grown even since then. And so all of that is to say that the occult and witchcraft have uh, grown in popularity over the last few decades. Now, to begin with, what exactly are we even talking about when we're talking about this? Witchcraft, the occult, paganism, whatever. Uh, I think we can kind of associate some superficial trappings of these things and get some idea, you know, you can imagine someone casting spells, someone burning incense, someone invoking some ancient pagan or nature deity or something. But what are we really talking about here? Again, there's difficulty pigeonholing a movement that is so varied and lacks any kind of institutional structure. In the, in the article, one, one person interviewed said, the religion is individualistic in so many ways. You can do your own thing. It's not signing on to an institutional religion. It's not signing on to a set of actions or a belief you must adhere to. And so all of that makes it quite difficult to define this exactly. But what do these divergent things have in common? I think we can say this at least. They are attempting at grasping at the mystical and spiritual world. That's, at the very least, I think what we can say they're trying to do. They're attempting to grasp at a sort of unseen world, at uh, the mystical and the spiritual a lot of this falls under what used to be called sort of New Age spirituality. Um, but more specifically, here's what, here's what I think is happening. Um, these practices are attempts at accessing spiritual insight or spiritual power apart from Yahweh. That's what I think they're doing. And that's sort of my working definition. These are attempts at, at uh, accessing spiritual insight or spiritual power as, uh, apart from the God of the Bible the article's description of the goals of the practitioners of these things go like this. The proliferation of witchcraft reflects two timeless and universal urges. One, the need to draw meaning from chaos, and two, the desires to control the circumstances around us. And so those, according to this, is sort of the core driving mission, to draw meaning, to get insight about the world that's so so uh, crazy it seems, and then number two, to try to control some way the circumstances around them. So we're talking about attempting to understand and master the world through these spiritual techniques. So for example, attempting to use magic, uh, thinking that there's some sort of process we can, we can use, some magic words we can say, some potion we can create. This is an attempt to make something happen in the world through use of spiritual methods. Um, in, in, a, in a way, I heard someone make this comparison before. Really, science is to the natural world what magic is to the supernatural world. And so the scientist believes that through the right techniques, he can discover the true nature and even influence the natural world. And what magic simply does is the very same thing, try to use the same techniques only with the supernatural world. Astrology would sort of be an offshoot of this. Astrology is an attempt to understand the world and the future through the movement of the stars, which are imbued with this mystical power. And so we're trying to make sense of the world. We're trying to get this spiritual insight through means other than, other than appealing to the God of the Bible. Or, or a medium, a necromancer, attempts to bridge the divide between the living and the dead through their insight. It's an appeal to insight uh, through some other means than, than God. So, all of that is my, is my uh, long winded introduction. Here's my plan. Uh, number one, I want to do a brief biblical survey, maybe not that brief, because the Bible does address these things at, at some length. Number two, I want to ask the question that I, I tend to be most interested in in these discussions. The question I'm interested in is, is there anything to it? Are the Bible's warnings about these things along the lines of, well, it's all just a silly waste of time and that's why you shouldn't do it? Or are the Bible's warnings more along the lines of, hey, this is a genuine danger. There's actual dark things here that are to be avoided. Is the Bible's stance toward these, oh, it's just silly and waste of time? Or is it, hey, there's genuine Danger here. So that's my second thing. Is there anything to it? And then finally, number three, make a few concluding observations about how we should think about this movement and uh, how we should respond to it. So let's begin with a brief biblical survey. Um, I was interested to learn that the resurgence of the occult in the U.S. is very recent. As we said, 1980 it's very minuscule, now it's, it's greater. Um, I read that the origins of, of these sorts of practices in, in our modern in, modern, uh, in the modern America, really began, we see traces of it in the 1960s, in uh, sort of feminist and environmentalist circles, it began to be more mainstream in the 80s and 90s, you even see it in popular culture sometimes, uh, reflections of, you know, a TV show about witches, about Wicca and stuff like that. And then with the internet, there are these communities, online communities in which people can sort of exchange ideas and learn, and then along with that is the decline of traditional religion has sort of made more people seek spirituality other places. All of this has ramped up over the past 20 years. However, sometimes we need to be reminded, sin was not invented in the summer of 1967. The world of the Bible is absolutely saturated with paganism and the occult. God's people throughout the entire Bible lived in places where this was much more common than it is here and now. Ancient Israel knew all about mediums and soothsayers and magicians and practitioners of witchcraft and sorcery. Simply stated, the Old Testament is uniformly opposed to all manner of these sort of superstitions. Uh, You will run across prohibitions throughout the book of Leviticus, for example, often in the context of these extended uh, discourses on just laws. There'll be a law about diet, there'll be a law about hair, then there'll be a law about witchcraft. So for example, Leviticus 19 and verse 26, you shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. And so it just pops up like this throughout the law. It was a very serious offense of the law of Moses to be a, a proliferator of these practices, uh, to be one who sort of led, tried to lead people in them who claimed to have this power. And so Leviticus 20 and verse 27, a man or woman who is a medium or a necromancer, one who claimed to be able to speak to the dead, shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones, and their blood shall be upon them. I want to ask you to turn with me to Deuteronomy 18, <clears throat> because this is a little bit longer, um, longer passage. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 9. This is Deuteronomy 18 and verse 9. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, Deuteronomy 18 and verse 9, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them, the Canaanites, out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God, for these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to the diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So separation from these practices is one of the important marks separating Israel from their Canaanite Canaanite neighbors. These practices are one of the chief sins for which God is judging these Canaanite nations and casting them out of Canaan. And the warning here is, if Israel is going to start acting like Canaanites, if they're going to start falling into these practices, it will be to God just as detestable as it was when those other nations did them, and they should expect to be cast out of Canaan just as those nations were being. It's a serious breach of faith to attempt to access spiritual power apart from God. You want to know the unknown. You want to have some preview of the future. You want to get guidance for some decision. You want to exercise control over others. You want to harm someone else, or you want to ward off someone's harm of you. What people reach for when they're alienated from the omnipotent God is these things. For Israel to seek counsel from the pagans is to doubt God's providence. It's to doubt God's power. It's to doubt God's protection. To a serious breach of faith. And so that's the law. The message of the law is very clear. And yet, despite these very strong prohibitions, Israel does, in fact, engage in these practices at various points in their history. So early in his reign, King Saul actually drove out the sort of magicians and soothsayers from Israel. However, you recall, in a very desperate moment, uh, at the end of his life, he sought one of these out. Uh, She is called sometimes the witch or the medium of Endor. Uh, And he's trying to contact the spirit of the departed prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 28. Uh, We actually talked about this a while back. Someone asked a question about ghosts, and so we talked about the story at more length. But I just want you to point out, I want to point out the chronicler names this breach of Saul as one of the big factors contributing to his judgment And his death. This is first Chronicles ten and verse thirteen. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord, and that he did not keep the commandment of the Lord, and also consulting a medium, seeking guidance, he did not seek guidance from the Lord. I want you to notice what the breach was. Not just that Saul committed a no no. God said, Don't do this, and Saul did this, therefore, you know, no no, Saul. Not just that. It's that he sought guidance from some source over God. God's prohibitions against this stuff is rooted in the idea that he wants us to seek knowledge and insight and power through him alone and no other source. Of course, no other God, but no other means of trying to access spiritual power apart from him. The author of Kings says that the invasion of the northern kingdom by Assyria, in part, was God's judgment on them for their involvement in these sorts of activities. And so this is Second Kings Pull it up. Second Kings 17 and verse 17. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. So among those things are divination and omens. You also find it popping up in Judah during the reign of its evilest kings, Manasseh, would be one example. And so of Manasseh, we are told, Second Kings 21 and verse 6, he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. In many passages, including this one, you always see a strong connection between these practices and idolatry. Um, I'll read you what one, uh, what one author, what commentator, one commentator said in really describing the breach of these, what's at its core, what's wrong with seeking wisdom in a, in a medium, with seeking wisdom and power in a witch. He said this, all these activities explicitly acknowledge and pay homage to lesser powers, to claimants of deity that are not the Almighty God. This is especially evident in what has always been one central dimension of superstition consulting a medium for guidance concerning the future which in turn is perhaps the epitome of idolatry. Divination entails looking to lesser powers for guidance rather than the one true God who alone is sovereign of the future and the fountainhead of wisdom. Rather than beseeching God, we beseech a creature. That's one of the reasons this is always linked to idolatry, because we are seeking from someone who is not God what can only truly be found in God. We are seeking knowledge from someone who is not the omniscient one. We are seeking power from someone who is not the omnipotent one. And that is always associated with idolatry. Uh, One more here to throw up on the screen. This is from Isaiah 8 and verse 19. And when they say to you, quote, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, making fun of the sounds they make, you know, as they try to access their, their powers. When they say to you, inquire of the Medians and Necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? The core problem in the Bible with these practices is that we are offering authority, bestowing authority and obedience to powers other than the sovereign God of the universe. It's not just wrong, though it is wrong, it's absurd. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you go seek for power from someone who is not the all-powerful God? To just mention very briefly, um, in the world of the New Testament, um, you have just as many superstitions, um, and Christians are warned of of these same things in the New Testament with the same underlying logic. We seek power and knowledge from God, and we don't seek it from anything or anyone else. And so in Galatians 5, among the works of the flesh mentioned are sorcery or witchcraft. There may be some hint of this in Paul's warnings to Timothy about those who devote themselves to deceitful spirits, 1 Timothy 4, one, or to irreverent silly myths, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 7. There may be some, some sort of gesture toward these sorts of practices. You also have in the visions of Revelation warnings that God will judge these practices and banish from his kingdom all those who do not repent, quote, of their sorceries, Revelation 9 and verse 21. So the entire Bible speaks with one voice on the subject. These things are out there. They have been for a long time. They are to be avoided by God's people in all circumstance. And they represent a serious breach of faith with the true source of all power and insight. To consult these things is to announce to God, I don't think that you have all the power that I need. I don't think that going to you uh, I can find all the wisdom that I need for the world. It represents a serious, idolatrous breach of faith. Which brings us to the question that I'm interested in. This wasn't exactly asked in the question, but it's just, as I studied, it's what I was interested in thinking about. And that is, is there anything to this? How seriously does the Bible take all of this? Are we to avoid it simply because it's all just mumbo-jumbo and a waste of time, which I think is typically the approach most people sort of take toward it? Or are we to avoid it because there actually is real and dark power behind it, there potentially could be? Is that the nature of the warning? Is it something to just be laughed at, or is it something to be avoided with a a healthy fear? Well, we can say, first of all, the Bible is constantly affirming God alone is sovereign. Ultimately, he alone controls the world. The gods of the nations are nothing. The idols are nothing. And there is no witch or shaman who can thwart God's plans, who can cast some spell that makes God say, uh-oh, I didn't see this coming. I, I don't know what to do now. That doesn't, that doesn't happen. You know, when Israel sought spiritual power through other means, they certainly weren't successful, you know, in the sense they were able to successfully live in the land apart from God. And they said, you know, we don't need you, God, anymore. We found the spiritual power that's just as good as you are. That never happens. And so on that level, we can say they need, we need not fear that that we found a power that is in any way equal to God. At the very least, we could say that. But as I read all of God's warnings about these things, I just got to say it doesn't seem to me that sorcery or divination is ever simply laughed out of the room. God's laws against superstitions are, are, are as interesting for what they don't say as for what they do. So what they do say is, do not consult with the medium. God calls you to trust his power and his wisdom, not the power and wisdom that the Canaanite religions say they can offer. That's what they do say. But what they don't say is because it's all just a bunch of malarkey. That's what they don't say. The laws don't deny the potentiality of such things. They just warn against the potential for idolatry and how they sever one's connection with the true God. When God warns his people against visiting medians, the reason he gives is not because they're all a bunch of charlatans, though I am certain that most of them were. But the reason he gives, why you avoid them, is because of Israel's holiness, which needed to be protected. Because they needed to be separate from any trapping of idolatry. Because Israel's full faith in God to provide them with all the spiritual power that they needed. And so one commentator on the, on the law of Moses puts it this way. Yahweh forbids Israel to use these means, not because they don't work necessarily, but because they are wicked. And I think that, that reflects the law. It's, these things are wicked. They're not empty necessarily. They're not powerless, but what they are are wicked and dangerous. And we have to admit, if we affirm that the history the Bible reports is true, there have been, at least in history, a few genuine witches. So, for example, Saul visits the medium, the witch at Endor, to consult the deceased Samuel, and to everyone's surprise, including hers, the spirit of Samuel actually shows up. Something actually happened there. Now, I don't think the lesson of that story is that we should expect something like that to happen on a regular basis, but there does exist a potentiality that a power like that can be accessed. It's happened before. Now, again, the fact that it could potentially happen doesn't mean we should ever seek it because if you read the story, Saul doesn't have some great experience. He doesn't get some wonderful insight that helps him so much. He actually gets something that brings about his judgment even swifter and is credited with one of the reasons for why he dies so soon after that. In the New Testament, Acts 16, at the city of Philippi, Paul comes across a slave girl who, quote, had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune. To. And so in her case, she has a spirit, which seems to be a way of describing a demon, because in that story Paul uh, casts out the demon from her, but it seems that she has an evil spirit who enabled her to tell fortunes. Now, we could quibble whether uh, she actually could or she only made people think that she could, but the text doesn't actually get into that. It just sort of says it matter-of-factly. In her case, it seems to me there is a genuine power being accessed only through the agency of a demon. So what do we make of this? Let Let me... draw on something we've talked about before. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 10. Go through to 1 Corinthians 10. So not too long ago, we had a a Wednesday night class on the subject of demons. Um, And when we talked about demons, one of the things I I mentioned there was that demons are often in the Bible connected to idols. Uh, You see it in the great song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. You see it in Psalm 106. And you see it in 1 Corinthians 10. An idol, of course, is nothing. A block of wood, a piece of metal. Idols can't do anything. Idols are nothing. But you know what? A demon is something. That's something that does exist. And if the demonic are actually behind the idol, then actually an idol kind of is something after all. So in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is in the midst of this long passage about what to do about the issue of eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. There was a real issue in Corinth among this group that consisted of a lot of former idolaters. And, and what he's, who he's addressing are people who are just a little bit too gung-ho about all this. And they're saying, you know, idols aren't real. Nothing magic happens to the meat if you kill it and sacrifice to an idol. Everyone knows that's, that's fine. And so, you know, the idol's temple, that has the best steak in town. What's the big deal? We go down, we get our meat, we bring it home, let's eat, and just forget about the whole thing. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 basically to that crowd is, you need to tap the brakes on that. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So understand what he says here. He holds up for comparison three types of religious meals. Um, the Lord's Supper, um, Jewish feasts, and then pagan sacrificial meals. And what they all three have in common is that the worshipers involved in those meals claim it creates a special connection between them and God. And so verse 16 and 17, those who are protecting the Lord's Supper become participants with Christ in that meal. It's a sacred meal. Verse 18, Jews who eat the sacrifices... That they make to their God, express gratitude and devotion to their God as they do. There's a connection made between the eaters of of the meal and the one it was killed, the the meal was killed and sacrificed to. In verse 19, what Paul says is just apply the same logic to the pagan sacrifices. The first two examples, the Lord's Supper and the Jewish feast, demonstrate how a special meal establishes a bond with the God, with the true God. So, what do we say about the pagan gods? He says. First of all, it doesn't mean they actually exist. They're just blocks of wood. No no bond can be established with a God that doesn't actually exist. We know that, verse 19. But that's not the end of the question. Zeus doesn't exist. But you know, dark and malevolent spiritual forces do exist. And those dark and malevolent forces would love nothing more than to entice people away from the true God and entice them toward a block of wood. And while idols are not real... Demons are, and they hold sway over people through sins like idolatry. So the logic of Paul is this. An idol is nothing. We know that. But there stands behind each idol a smiling demon, happy to see a poor sinner being misled and lost. Behind every idol stands a smiling demon. There actually is real power behind idols. There actually is for that reason. To worship an idol is actually to worship a demon And any act of worship or fellowship toward a God who's not real is pleasing to a demon who definitely is real. So here's what I'm trying to say. The reality of demons should, should give us pause before we dismiss the idea that there might be dark spiritual powers in, say, idolatry. And dark spiritual arts like sorcery, witchcraft, divination, mediums also circle around idolatry. And so it's my belief that that the Bible's warnings about these things are grounded in a genuine danger that exists. And it's built on the fact that there really are dark and malevolent and powerful spiritual forces in the world. We are certain that that is true. And anything that purports, whether it's genuine or not, but anything that purports to be accessing those dark, malevolent spiritual forces, Christians say, no thank you. I don't want anything to do with that. So... A couple of concluding observations. Number one, spiritual power and insight are only reliable and safe when connected to Yahweh. The Bible is unambiguous in warning us that all dark spiritual practices carry with them a grave danger. The activities of sorcerers and mediums, soothsayers, practitioners of witchcraft can can only put us into contact with malevolent and not benevolent powers. They can only put us into contact with powers of darkness and not powers of light. And so we dabble in these matters only to our detriment and only to our harm. The call of God is is not to try to tap into some other power. The call of God is to realize, as James says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. We direct all of our prayers, all of our requests for guidance and help, we direct these toward God. We can do that confident that he alone can and does supply what we need. We can do that confident that he alone is sovereign. He is the one who dispatches good spiritual powers to minister to his people. Hebrews 1 and verse 14 gives a hint about angels' involvement in this. But God is the one who can dispatch the spiritual power and the spiritual insight that actually helps. Spiritual power is only reliable and safe when connected to God. Number two... Whatever dark powers do exist are under the authority of Christ. You know what happens every time a demon is told by Jesus to do something? Every time, without an exception. It does it. Whether it wants to or not, and they they never want to do what Jesus is, but they do. The demons tremble and beg that Jesus will have mercy on them. And they're all compelled to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. In Mark 3 and verse 27, Jesus describes himself as a strong man who's capable of tying up Satan and plundering his house. And so we need to say, as as I've sort of built this up, and I do want to instill us with a healthy fear of these sorts of things, but at the same time we need to say, Jesus has freed us from servitude toward and fear of the spiritual realm. Dark powers do exist. We serve the one who has mastered all of them. And we would not just be wrong to try to consult them. We would be foolish to consider embracing these sort of beggarly superstitions to seek power apart from Jesus because Jesus is the one who has conquered every other power in heaven and on earth. That brings me to a third point. Third and finally, this is kind of an apologetic point. I sort of want to make an observation about this phenomenon at sort of a sociological level. Rise in these things is a reaction to modern materialism. So for the last 300 years or so, um, the world has been subjected to a, wor- to a worldview called uh, scientific materialism, something like that. Um, as scientific progress has ramped up um, for the last 300 years, there has alongside it developed a philosophy, one that ironically can't be proven by science. But it's a philosophy that says, because we're learning so much about the world, We now know we no longer need God. We don't need religion, and we don't need the spiritual realm. You know, those were just superstitions people relied on before we knew all the scientific knowledge, and you didn't know how the world worked, and so you said, well, God did it. But now we're discovering how these things actually work, and we're saying God sort of shrinking down, and we don't need him anymore. We know how the world works now, and if we don't know how something works, just give us more time. We'll run the right experiment. Science will figure that out too, but science... As view says, science accounts for all reality. Matter is all that exists. Well, in reaction to that worldview, there has emerged reactions which point out obvious shortcomings to that philosophy. And some of these reactions to that sort of modernist um, pride, some of those reactions have been better than others. So there have been ethical philosophers who have pointed out that Science, yes, it can tell us a lot about the physical world, but it can tell us nothing about ethical, the ethical world. It can tell us nothing about morality. You know, Science can tell us how to make an atomic bomb, but science cannot tell us anything about how or whether it should ever be used. Science has nothing to say about that. There are plenty of, of, of examples of knowledge which science cannot enlighten us on. That's a good reaction to that. That's, that's sound. Clearly not all knowledge comes from physical sciences. There have, there have, however, also been less helpful reactions to this modern pride. For example, there have been a, people of a movement called postmodernism which have reacted against the proud certainty of science by saying, you know, actually, truth is totally relative, and we can't know anything whatsoever reliably. And So that's a reaction and one that is not, not especially helpful. That's a long way of saying the rise of interest in witchcraft is at least in part reaction to this sort of movement in our world. And I think recognizing that is an insight that helps us understand it better and understands people who are drawn to it better. This comes from the article that I mentioned in the beginning, the article about witchcraft. And this is from someone who's a practitioner of witchcraft. She says, witchcraft enables me to see the world through a more balanced lens, I felt the reassuring presence of, an er- of the otherworldly in the midst of difficult circumstances. I felt the reassuring presence of the otherworldly in the midst of difficult circumstances. Should we encounter someone who believes in this sort of mystical New Age, Wicca, whatever? I think we can, like Paul in Athens, begin in a place of agreement. We are more than matter. We are more than atoms just randomly banging around. There does exist another world we cannot see. There is power and guidance to be sought outside of ourselves. Science does not tell us everything there is to know. There is power and guidance to be sought outside of ourselves and outside of modern science. And then we can say, now let me show you the one through whom all things were created things in heaven and things on earth, things visible and things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, Colossians 1.16. I think recognizing that, this sort of reaction, helps us understand, even empathize to an extent. And were we to encounter someone like this, we could say, you know, I hear where you're coming from, and then point them to the true source of spiritual light, and insight and power. So, as always, um, the way I feel this works is I sort of ramble for about 30 minutes and then say, That's the best I got. But that is the best I got. Thank you for your questions. Keep getting those to me. Maybe there's someone here uh, that, as we're thinking about spiritual things, realizes you need to come and seek the help of, of the true God of wisdom, the true God of power. Whatever your spiritual need, come forward now as we stand the same.
1: the question of life what will your answer be sadly you'll stand if you're unprepared trembling you'll fall on your knee facing the sentence of life or of death what will that sentence be now is the time to prepare my so spotless and free, washed in the blood of the crucified one, he will your answer be. What will it be? What will it be? Where will you spend your eternity? What will it be?